This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Thank you so much, Haley. No, thank you. Haley is our youth fellow, by the way. If you haven't met her, yeah, you can clap for her. Who felt the earthquake this morning? I did too. Thought my dog was knocking over my desk. This is interesting. Okay, well, we're in the book of Philemon. We're just doing a two-week break in Philemon right now, and then we're going to be jumping back into Romans next week. Ben will be uh, preaching back in the book of Romans. But last week we reflected on two theological ideas from Paul in the book of Philemon. Koinia and being in Christ. And both these ideas end up figuring into this week's passage too. Uh, Thinking back, we talked about Paul last week not being some special apostle that took over a generation after Jesus, but that he saw himself as a servant alongside Jesus and the apostles to be beaten up and impoverished, imprisoned, passionate for Christ because he saw himself wrapped up in a life in Christ. In Philemon, Paul spills a lot of ink to give what the marriage counseling expert John Gottman calls a gentle startup. He goes out of his way to emphasize the family nature of the Christian community. 
And then Paul continues to be gentle in his qualifications, saying things like, I won't make a command. I want to come alongside. I come alongside. But before he makes his request to Philemon that Philemon welcome Onesimus back like a prodigal son, he does even more gentle groundwork. He talks about how much Onesimus means to him, and he calls him his child. He says, my child, Onesimus. Onesimus is an enslaved person who worked for a guy named Philemon, presumably in Colossae. There's an Onesimus who's actually mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we think that it's the same man. In Colossians 3, Paul says something that he also writes in other places. He says, slaves, obey your masters. What's interesting is that later in Colossians, he mentions this enslaved man, Onesimus, but he calls him faithful and beloved brother in Colossians. He never mentions that Onesimus is a slave, a slave who ran away. And this raises so many questions. One, what is a slave in the ancient world? And how does it relate to slavery in the United States and modern slavery that still exists and even thrives underground in the Western world, including in the U.S.? Two, why does Paul not outright condemn slavery to Philemon? A third question, why does Paul tell slaves to obey their masters? And I want to take on those three questions first, and then I want to close at looking at why or how Paul is so gentle but firm with Philemon and about how Christians relate to one another and really answer the question, why would someone live the way that Paul lives? So first, let's look at these three questions. They were, what is a slave in the ancient world? Why doesn't Paul just outright condemn slavery? And why does Paul tell slaves to obey their masters? So what is, what is slavery in the ancient world? Well, th- this is a tricky question. You may have heard people say, uh, or in fact, I'd like, to, I'd like to know, how many of you have ever heard someone say, well, slavery was different in the ancient world? Have you ever heard that before? Okay. That's a tricky question. Um, Slavery is different in the ancient world. Yes, that's true. It was different than the enslavement of African people in the US and Western world and Western Europe. Uh, That's partially true, but I find it pretty tone deaf if that's the only argument that we talk about. The phrase, that is a totally different kind of slavery to me, recalls Lucille Bluth's question, what can a banana cost, $20? Or a few years ago, I saw an article whose title was $250,000 a year. Is it enough for a family to live on? It was in a reputable newspaper, and the answer, according to the article, was no. Now, granted, it's cheaper to live in Winston-Salem than to live in New York City. That question is relative, but it's still pretty tone deaf. As is glossing over the word slavery when defining that it's a different kind of slavery. Slavery in the ancient world was not necessarily based on race, and it was not necessarily generational. There were two main ways that people became enslaved in the ancient world. The first is by way of a nation conquering another nation and making slave laborers out of the resident population. But the people were unfairly or still not at all compensated, even if it wasn't based on a racial construct that systemically stole people from their land. 
it's still conquering, which is why it's tone deaf to try to rationalize it. On the other hand, the Old Testament prescribes that Jews should release anyone who is enslaved to them every seven years, no matter what. They should forgive their debts and let them go. The second way that people became enslaved in the ancient world was through debt. And this would be more equivalent to being working poor in America. So people who are in poverty tended, just like today, to remain in poverty because of inequality in their society. And when they couldn't pay their debts, they would become slaves or servants to their indebtors. The difference here is that it's not discriminatory. And often these folks could be freed after working off their debt. And that's likely the type of debt, the type of uh, slavery that Onesimus was living in. In the case of Onesimus, this means Paul's not just asking Philemon to treat him like an equal, he's also asking him to forgive a debt, which we see in the passage. It's not just, it's not equitable for a person to enslave another person for a debt. But it's a little different than modern slavery in that the person is not viewed solely as property. Okay, so I'm not justifying that. I'm just saying it's slightly different, which is going to build into what Paul is getting at here. In Philemon's view, he would likely feel like Onesimus stole from him. And this to me is sort of like a person who's stuck in chronic poverty, skipping out on their rent. No doubt the system is inequitable and unjust, but there is some exchange between the two people. So this is different than race or gender-based enslavement in that these people did theoretically have opportunities for freedom and even citizenship in the Roman Empire. Again, it's not okay, okay, it's not okay But Paul's operating on an assumption from the Hebrew Bible that slaves could be freed and should be freed every seven years, and that the wider culture viewed slaves as having the potential for upward mobility. Upward mobility is, of course, nearly impossible for these folks, just like the working poor in the United States, which will inform what Paul means when he says, slaves, obey your masters, okay? There's no doubt in my mind that Paul does not ask those who are in race or gender-based slavery to obey their masters. Let me say that again. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul does not ask those in race or gender-based slavery to obey their masters. No one should be subjected to sex trafficking. No human should be subjected to imprisoned labor. I think that's even clear in the semantics of Paul's argument here. In the United States, our founding fathers were kidnapping people, they were buying them as property, and they criminalized any chance at equality for these enslaved people. They could not work for freedom, they could not own property, they could not vote, they could not be citizens, and these aren't even the worst parts of enslavement of African people. In the ancient world, the outcomes may not be better in reality, which is why we can't rationalize ancient enslavement. But, hypothetically, the systems could produce equality in a different way, in a way that was unattainable in American slavery and is maybe more akin to the theoretical but possible 
uh, freedom that someone working in a, in a poverty cycle in the United States would be experiencing. The system has its own unethical and inequitable problems, so the practice is still harming people, but there's a difference in the potential outcome that's informed by a different view of the enslaved people. One views them as people who can be exploited but have the potential for freedom, which is not okay, but different than viewing people as not human, but property. So that leaves the question, why does Paul tell slaves to obey their masters? Well, to start with, you have to conceive of a slave as someone who is working poor, not the mindset of someone who's treated as property, not a population of people who are imprisoned without any recourse, if only theoretical. Paul's saying something akin, something akin to, yes, your boss is woefully underpaying you, which is leading to debt and an inescapable cycle of chronic poverty. Or yes, your landlord is preying on your poverty with weekly rent and overpricing your room. But Paul's saying, as an act of Christian love, don't flee your debt or quit in the middle of your shift or not pay rent. He's telling them to work these things out in an honorable way so the conscience of the person who's committing the oppression might be awakened. It's not fair. It's not just. It's not equitable. It's just a way of awakening the conscience in the person committing the oppression, which doesn't mean that it's okay. It's just a way of getting across a message. Okay? And that brings us to, to Paul's main point, which is, what is he asking Onis uh, Philemon to do regarding Onesimus? And how does he accomplish that? And I think he does it through this gentle, sacrificial call. Paul's rather gentle about asking Philemon not to punish Onesimus. He doesn't demand it, but in a sly way, Paul's being pretty demanding on the conscience of Philemon. He describes Onesimus as his child, as his heart, their brother, and a guest worthy of warm hospitality. Onesimus is not property at all as Paul sees him. He sees him as an elevated, equal family member. And Paul leaves no room for Philemon to think otherwise. Paul calls himself father to Onesimus, his child. Paul's really, really going out of his way to emphasize the humanity, the dignity, and the equality of Philemon. And this sort of reminds me of uh, another rhetorical masterpiece, which would be the show 30 Rock. In it, Tracy Morgan plays a comedian who hits a, on a lot of women. And at the same time, he's hoping to have a daughter with his wife. And in one episode, he flirts with a new dancer on the show. And after flirting her, he asks her, what's your name? She says, Virginia. In response, Virginia? But that's going to be my daughter's name. Are you someone's daughter? And she responds, uh, yeah. And he says, is every woman someone's daughter? And this sort of blows up his conscience. Paul's making sure that Philemon sees the humanity of Onesimus by calling him his child. Not only does he call him family, he assigns this sympathetic, innocent title, child. Paul dabbles in some instrumental language in verse 11 when he says, well, he was useless to you. So it makes him feel like maybe Philemon will say, oh, well, he gets that, that he's supposed to work for me. But then Paul switches right back 
after saying he was useless, he says, he's my very heart. And if you recall from last week, for some reason, Paul doesn't use the Greek word cardia here, like cardiac, talking about his heart center. He talks about, he uses this word that means guts or entrails or his bowels, which is pretty gross. He's saying, Onesimus is my deep insides. He's my bowels. And gross as that seems, it underscores that Paul is saying not something sentimental or modern in the rom- uh, uh, romantic in the modern sense by calling him his heart. He's saying, he's my essence. He's deep in my core. I'm connected to this man. I think a lot of English translations underemphasize this and come dangerously close to giving a, a property sensibility to Onesimus. Verse 13, translated more literally, reads, I would want to hold him myself. So Paul's saying, I, Paul, would want to embrace Onesimus myself. Paul's not saying, I wish I could have him as my own property. He's saying, I would want to hold him myself. I would want to keep him with me in a hospitable way. But instead, you, Philemon, should embrace him with hospitality. And Paul says so much in this sort of passive-aggressive, playful way. He puts on this sort of obtuse tone, and he glosses over any wrongdoing by Onesimus for fleeing his debt to Philemon in verses 15 and verse 22, if you look at those verses. In verse 15, take a look at that. Paul throws out this sort of aloof theory where he says, well, maybe this is why he was removed from you for a while. Maybe it was so you guys could start fresh And instead of treating him as a slave, you could treat him like a son. Maybe that's what happened. And I love how Paul starts with maybe. He's sort of like a child who's been asked, did you leave your bike at our neighbor's house? And the child responds, maybe our dog rode my bike to the neighbor's house. And he doesn't say that Onesimus fled, right? He makes Onesimus passive. He was taken away. He was removed for a while, as if Onesimus just passively was abducted by aliens, vaporized for a little season out of the sight of Philemon. And then Paul finishes by saying, while you're at it, make up a guest room for me too. He's implying here that not only does he expect Philemon to not punish Onesimus, not just let him come back as if nothing's happened, but Paul passive-aggressively says, Oh, make me a guest room just like the one you're going to make up for Onesimus because I expect you to make him 